Welcome to the Old Galway Diary podcast. Each week, Tom Kenny and I, Ronnie O'Gorman, write a column in the Galway Advertiser. Before it goes to press, we contact each other and share what is filling the page that particular week. This podcast is that conversation. And I would add, we enjoy talking to you and would appreciate if you would give us a rate and review on the Apple Podcast app. Thank you. Hey, Ronnie. Hi, Tom. Tom, I was speaking to a neighbor and he was commenting on your um your you know description of the industrial sco- school there in Lower Salt Hill, St. Joseph's, yeah. and the boys, and, and a very nice tribute that you paid. He was saying that he hoped a suitable plaque would be erected on that building. You know, at the moment, there's nothing there. Uh, you know, there's just a Christian Brothers um, sort of emblem. But it would yeah. be nice if a plaque was made just in recognition of those boys. I thought it was a very good idea. I'd yeah, pass it on be. to anyone that I think might might do something about it, you know. Yes, well, I've had another man in touch with me who is now considering writing a history of the school, uh, which yeah. would be, yeah. I don't know what kind of access he would get to archives and so on. Uh, the Christian brothers mightn't be that keen, but they might. Yeah. Uh, it would be better to have it all out in the open. But yeah, it, it would also honor, as you say, the uh, the boys that went through that place. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Well, that's a good yeah. development. Okay, Tom, this week, what have you got? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. This week, I am writing about Moon's Corner. Oh, <clears throat> which is, of course, one of the most iconic. It's not a corner at all, but it's that's all it's ever known as to go to yeah, Regents. It is Moon's Corner. Yeah. It's a rounded corner, if you like, and it's very much complemented by the one on the other side of the street, what used to be McNamara's, yes. and also by the very elegant corner, the third one, which was Dylan's for many, many years as well. And uh, this building goes back apparently to about the year 1812 it's architecturally very attractive uh it hasn't the exterior of it hasn't been changed at all actually yeah. since the uh, so. yeah. no 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 now in uh, 1852 the earl of eglinton who was the then lord lieutenant of ireland he came to galway to open the eglinton canal and uh it seemed as if the town went a little bit mad naming places after him. <laughs> there was the Eglinton Hotel. There was the Eglinton Cricket Club, oh. the Eglinton Racket Court, right. the Eglinton Baths in Salt Hill, Eglinton Street, and Eglinton Buildings. And that was the name on Moons for many, many years. Uh, it, it started originally uh, in business under the name Farkerson. Uh, and then it became Farkerson and Moon, then Alexander Moon, Alexander Moon Limited, and of course today it's known as Brown Thomas. But still, Galwegians will always know it as Moon's Corner, really. I think so. Uh, <clears throat> now, there was a very major change in the 60s to the interior of the building. Up to then, it had been, it was described as a whole series of small rooms and a pokey stairs, which I, I vaguely remember. I do remember a lot of wood, a lot of timber, uh, counters, uh, shelving, 
polished wood. <coughs> uh, but they gutted the whole thing and uh, opened it all up into what it is today. But I think myself with it, that they took an awful lot of the character of the building away in doing this. And in particular, Moons had a unique paying system. Uh, <laughs> you <clears throat> went to the counter, you got your goods, you handed over the money. <clears throat> the, there was a round wooden ball made of chestnut, which the shop assistant could unscrew and into the bottom half of this went your money and uh, an invoice. The thing was screwed back together. It was placed into some kind of a thing. They pulled the lever and this shot up in the air. And it ran along an open rail past the counters all the way to the cashier, whom you never saw. Mm. And a minute or two later, this ball would come rolling back and <laughs> hop down. I remember as well. In front of you, and yeah. it was unscrewed, and you were given your change and your receipt. Now, it was based on gravity. This system, it was very, pretty unique. There were other shops that had similar systems, but theirs were more modern <coughs> and didn't have the same character as Moon's at all. McDonough's had one. McCambridge's yeah, had one. Yeah. Uh, you know, there were several of them in Galway, but this one was, and in fact, it was so unique. Apparently, it, it has gone to a museum in the UK. They bought it when uh, it was being dismantled because it was based on gravity and was pretty much unique. But, you know, it was kind of unique to you for a minute as you stood beside the counter. <laughs> and, and it was also quite hypnotic. You yes. know, you, you had to watch it. I tracked yeah. this yeah. ball as it rolled. Yes. There were yeah. balls of different sizes depending yeah. on which counter you were on. Yeah. The so, cashier was in the center of the shop, up high. Isn't that right? She yeah. was. Well, high. it had to be up high because this yes. was up near the ceiling. Yes. Uh, but I don't know that I ever saw the cashier. Maybe I did. You just see her. I face. don't remember. Yeah, I yeah. just don't remember. But anyway, it went to a museum in Britain. Oh, that's yeah. yeah. Now, there were uh, quite a number of apprentices in working in Moons. And they actually were housed upstairs. They lived and were fed upstairs. Uh, there was a man called Mick Leach, who was kind of in charge of this gang of apprentices. They had to be in by a certain time at night and so on. <coughs> uh, the other thing was there was a haberdashery in the basement where they sold fancy, all kinds of fancy goods, but also in the basement was the men's tailoring department. And this was a very big department, actually. Uh, there would have been one or two master tailors in the very early days. Jim Hines uh, was in charge there. And later in my time, I, Mick Daniels, he would have been coming to the end of his career but he made me a suit for something like 20 pounds. I, I, I can't remember exactly, but <clears throat> you were very carefully measured. They made up bespoke suits for customers. Uh, there were several um, tailors there, some apprentices, some kind of normal tailors as opposed to master tailors. But they would sit cross-legged on tables working away and... Uh, they, they, you know, they seemed, the, the other thing they had was um, 
moons had their own buttons. They had their names printed on the buttons that these men used in these suits. So I suppose you could say that it was the first major shop in Galway. They, they described themselves as warehouse men, drapers, ladies, gents, outfitters, hosiers, pictures makers, sellers of Galway homespuns, Connemara tweeds, cladder cloaks, household items, bedstead bedding, linoleum carpets, the works, shoes, boots, the whole lot. And, uh, and to an extent, they still do that today. It's a more exclusive upmarket shop today than it was in the early days. But it always seemed to have a kind of class about it, <laughs> I think. And, uh, and one of the images that I have used this week is, uh, it's an advertisement, actually from 1875, that's almost 150 years ago. Uh, they were very media savvy moons always. They advertised very heavily and uh, constantly kept themselves in the papers in front of the media and so on. So, yeah, it's a very interesting, it's a very historic building, of course, as well. Usually, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, but I think a lot of people of our generation will remember with great fondness the interior of the shop, and especially the uh, that yeah. system of payment, those you're, chestnut balls rolling around. You're absolutely right. I remember Moon's being there with my mum, and I was absolutely fascinated by the, the method of payment, as you say. And yeah. it was pulled up in a little lift. So, as you say, the shop assistant did the business, and put your money into the ball and rolled it up. And then it was pulled up on a little lift by the man. Yeah. And it went higher than the, the lady sitting in the middle of the shop, uh, who was the accountant. And to roll then down, as you say, all the way down, crisscross by gravity till it arrived at her desk. Okay. You, you, I just remember seeing a face and a hand and she'd take the money out and put in the change, the receipt and send it back the same way. It was an absolutely <laughs> fascinating, wonderful <laughs> method of payment. Yeah, it was. And, and uh, wonderful. And it, it wouldn't do too much if you were in a great hurry, no. <laughs> which was probably a good way of slowing one down mm. as well. You know, Oh, I think shopping in those days was quite a leisurely affair. I think you couldn't yes. you couldn't shop and be in a hurry. You had to take your time. Yeah. I seem to remember they had a chair. Uh, and my mother, I seem to remember sitting on a chair outside the counter with myself. And she'd be getting something or looking at something. But she'd have a chair to sit on. So as you say, it was that little bit of market, you know. It, that it was. A yeah. bit of style and a little bit of uh, old, uh, old... Comfort, yes. Definitely. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I agree. Oh, it's not that. bad today now. I don't mean this oh, no, in any way to denigrate the, no. the, the moons of today or the Brown Thomas of today. But uh, I maybe it's just nostalgia thinking back on it like that. Yes. Yeah. Of course it is. And it's worth thinking yeah. back on it. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Today it's a magnificent shop, actually. You know, yeah. Uh, anyway, that's great, Tom. I love that. I love that kind of nostalgia. And I know people will love to read it. So listen, I am I am continuing with my story of the settlement of the Connemara immigrants, 309 Connemara immigrants uh, that were the project was suggested by the Catholic Church. 
well, by uh, members of the Catholic Church. It wasn't an official um, uh, assisted emigration, which the bishops generally frowned on. <clears throat> but there was yeah. a particular priest from Liverpool, a Father Patrick Nugent, was a very good man. There's a statue to him in Liverpool, actually. A very, very good man who really devoted his life to helping children in, in getting schools and looking after women that were deserted and generally tackling housing. And you can remember in the, at the end of the 19th century, the huge tenements that not only existed in Dublin, but existed in places like Liverpool, which were horrendous. And this was a wonderful working man. But he used to come to the west of Ireland fishing. And gradually he saw the grinding down of the people, especially the tenants. He saw evictions and he saw the result of the great famine of the 1840s and the continuous potato crisis in the 1870s. And he said, this really cannot continue. And he contacted a friend of his, Archbishop John Ireland of St. Paul, Minnesota. And say, our, the Archbishop was an interesting man. And now he comes, they, 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 he, he ends up with a whole heap of trouble, actually. But nevertheless, he's an interesting man. He fought in the Union Army uh, as a well, he, he joined the Union Army as a chaplain in the Minnesota Volunteers and uh, was not shy in taking up a weapon and using it in a battle. Uh, he was very well got in St. Paul, again, a man who built schools, but particularly he brought Irish immigrants from the slums, the ghettos of New York, and settled them in Minnesota. Minnesota in the 1880s was opening up big time. The railway company were rolling forward. And as the railways rolled forward, there were opportunities. Land was opening up. Little towns were springing up. There was opportunities for healthy people, very important, healthy people who were strong to work in farmland. And he was giving out land that he got or bought from the railway company to these uh, Irish immigrants. And all that had worked quite well. We don't know really the result of some of that, but we do know the result of this particular uh, group of people, the 309 Connemara immigrants. Um, he agreed. He didn't like the idea at first, but Father Nugent persuaded him. Sure, listen, you're doing it anyway, sort of thing. You know, you must open up land for these people. They really are in a wretched state. So he did. And uh, uh, the the the... Immigrants were chosen by the local Catholic priests in the Clifton Newport area. And they chose a lot of single people. I think there was something like 35 single young women and 40, I think it was, uh, young lads, young men. The rest were families. And uh, the local priests who agreed with the system chose the families and so off they went. And I said last week how they left Galway and they arrived in Boston. Yes. They arrived in Boston anyway in June 1880, 11 days after departure from Galway, which was quite a, which was quite a, a, a good time for crossing in those days. Indeed. Now, there was great news went forward of these people coming and um, Archbishop Ireland was very well known and uh, he made a lot of it and he made sure people were there to meet them. So when the ship, it was the Austrian actually, an Allen line, when the ship landed in uh, Boston and uh, Mr. Dylan O'Brien, who was 
editor of a local newspaper and was a close friend and cooperator with the Archbishop, went on board to meet them. They were advised to stay on board that meeting, that, that evening. And uh, as they were there, crowds came and waved to them, wishing them a Cade Meal of Falcha. They left Boston the next day, the train passing through Buffalo and Cleveland, where again they were welcomed by Irish groups. At Chicago, members of the St. Patrick's Society uh, went on went on the train to meet them. Its secretary, uh, William O'Honohan, was there as well. But he was the only one to note the condition of these immigrants as they sat in their carriage. And he made a report afterwards saying, I'm going to quote this now, saying that the famine was visible in the children's pinched and emaciated faces and in their shriveled limbs, limbs, they could scarcely be called legs or arms. Their features were quaint and the entire company was squalid and wretched. It was a painful, painful revelation to witness this. So now this was all not a good omen, Tom. Oh, for, <laughs> for the hard work that would be required uh, on the, the plains of Minnesota. Nevertheless, uh, the good people of Chicago, they gave them bread and milk, cheese and ham. And uh, a, a Reverend Father Cashman came on board. He gave them a big box of clothes and they brought them all to Mrs. Loftus's hotel. I don't know if that still exists for a sumptuous dinner. And then from Chicago, they traveled on to St. Paul, where they were met by the Archbishop himself and a great crowd. And uh, they were brought out to the houses, the little cabins that were prepared for them on the 160 acres given to each family. So it all seemed fine, but I'm afraid things began to fall apart almost immediately. There was 50 farms there, 160 acres, I say, small cabin. With, and the first five acres had been ploughed over, ready for planting. But I'm afraid, judging from the description of the poor families, you know, the Connemaras, as they were called, had not the skill for the heavy farm work that was required. Furthermore, it, this was late June. They were two months behind normal planting season. Yeah. And despite efforts to regain their strength and adjust to their new environment and probably only able to speak in the Irish language, it didn't take long for reports of hardship uh, to come back to the Archbishop. And uh, uh, he was receiving complaints from neighbours that really the Connemaras are not making a fist of this at all. In fact, you know, with winter coming, it's not looking good. So... The Archbishop Ireland was very irritated by all this. Now, he was a man who took very, you know, pride, considerable pride in his achievements. And, uh, you know, he was a strong Irish-American, uh, an immigrant himself from Kilkenny, actually, during the 1840s. So, uh, you know, he knew something about immigration, but he also knew that people should be grateful and should, uh, you know, be prepared to work hard. Then he was told that some, not only did the Connemaras uh, not bother to plant the seed they were given, but they actually sold the seed on to local farmers. They sold the clothes they were given. Some of them sold the tools they were given to work the land. Mm. So the bishop was furious and he went down to see them and he said, look, this is serious. Um, and he set up a, a kind of uh, a, a social scheme 
where they were paid $2 a day for really doing nothing at all. But he felt that some kind of money. And also his reputation was at stake here. He was a proud man. He was happy about this, you can imagine. But things got dramatically worse. Now, I don't know if your children ever watched the Little House on the Prairie books, uh, TV series. My children did. And uh, the series was a bit schmulzy. But they're very, very good books written by Laura Wilder and on behalf of her family. And she describes how the family tried to survive in the Midwest and how they moved. But she particularly describes the terrible winter of 1880, 1881. There's a book, I remember as well reading it actually, it's called The Long Winter. And there was an incredibly freezing time. Um, the snow came early. Um, they, you know, the, the poor old Connemaras uh, were in a desperate way. Um, Dylan O'Brien, the, 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 the Archbishop's man who met them in Chicago, who met them, sorry, in, in Boston, he went to call to see them. And he decided to kind of support the, the, the Archbishop. And he observed that the, the neighboring farmers had brought the Connemaras flour and they pulled the flower through handheld sledges, quite a difficulty through the very heavy snow, but the flower was left untouched. And he complained and he made a report saying that many of them were wholly unreliable and have all the cunning with a life of which a life of pauperism gives, which is a terrible slur on the kind of yeah. Don't forget, Tom, they were weakened by everything. They yeah, really... Yeah. You know, there they were landed in this situation that required strengths and youth and, you know, they just were not able for it. Yet another reporter uh, described the women and children more or less frozen uh, in the little houses that were prepared, were not properly insulated. So this made the Archbishop all the more angry still. And, uh, you know, rather, rather in a mean way, he wrote a letter to all the St. Paul newspapers. And uh, he hit out at the poor Connemaras. And uh, uh, he, he, he said, you know, that Father Nugent had requested that he take these in. For the, you know, he had gone to all this trouble in getting them land, setting them up with acres, 160 acres, giving them tools to work the land, giving them clothes. And all, all he's left with that he could only describe them as, the, as they were just because they were paupers of long standing, they were totally demoralized and unmannered by years of suffering, and they were unaccustomed to provide for their own wants. And, you know, the situation came to a crisis where this little colony of Connemara people from Clifton and Newport could have been wiped out. Yeah. He was forced to bring them back (laughs) into St. Paul and... They settled in a little place on the east side of the town, which was known for years and years as the Connemara Patch. And it was a rather sad ending for them because, you know, and a a sad for the Archbishop, you know, he lost a lot of face in this. But the Archbishop, don't forget, had his reputation staked on looking after some of the poor immigrants living in the ghettos in New York, bringing them out to the Midwest. Uh, to take them away from that kind of, you know, tenement life or, you know, unhealthy living in New York City. And here he was now creating his own ghetto for the Connemara's, the Connemara patch in St. Paul. 
So that, I have to leave it there. <laughs> There's a little bit more to it. I'm going to look at James Hacktook's Assisted Emigration, more or less to the same part of Minnesota next week, just to see how they two compare. Um, but very sadly, uh, through no fault of their own, the Connemaras, I'm afraid, did not do well. No, what a shame. What a shame. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And what an opportunity. What an opportunity. Yeah, but it was... It wasn't altogether their fault, really, you know, just no. been put in the wrong seat. It was also very common for Irish immigrants landing on the east coast of North America. So debilitated when yeah. they left Ireland, yeah. made yeah. even more sick and debilitated by the journey over, uh, yeah. that they were really incapable of working. And there was a lot of sickness on board. And so in many cases, the ships had to stay out in the bay quarantining the passengers and by the time they got to the land they were literally too weak to work in many cases even though they might have had money uh, but that would have gone very quickly because they just simply had to survive so they would have started from the very bottom from the lowest possible level to work their way up Uh, and I, I it's a tribute to them and to their resilience and persistence that so many of them did so well, and so many of their families are, as a result, happy people today and comfortable and working hard and well yeah. as well. You know. Tom, I have spoken about that recently in recent weeks. Yes, indeed. The Irish are a great success story in America, but certainly for years they were caught in the ghettos. They couldn't get out of it. They eventually got out, as I said before, through this Tammany Hall system. Well, actually, some of them got out by by playing a role in the uh, in the armies of the American Civil War. That was respected, and they got a immediately they got decent wages, and they got a pension from that. But Tammany Hall, this corrupt system of Irishness, that helped yeah. them pull them, pull them by their scruff of their necks, pull them out, gave them pride, and sent them on their way. And today, as we know, the Irish in America are one of the most successful ethnic groups that are there. You know, extraordinary story. But it took took 100, 200 years, you know. It took a long time for that to happen. Yep, yep. So that's Well, we're looking forward to next week again. Okay, I'm looking forward to our chat. Right, Tom, nice to talk. Take care. Yeah, God bless. Bye-bye.